Welcome to the Cross-Cultural Psych Podcast with Professor Paul Youngbin Kim. This podcast features conversations on the intersection of psychology, culture, and faith with renowned scholars in psychology and related fields. And now, here is Dr. Paul Youngbin Kim. Professor Robert Chow Romero is an associate professor in the UCLA departments of Chicano Chicana Studies and Central American Studies and Asian American Studies. He received his PhD from UCLA in Latin American history and is Juris Doctor from UC Berkeley and is also an attorney. Romero is the author of several books, including The Chinese in Mexico, 1882 to 1940, and Brown Church, Five Centuries of Latina, Latino Social Justice, Theology and Identity. The Chinese in Mexico received a Latina Latino Studies Book Award from the Latin American Studies Association and Brown Church received the InterVarsity Press Reader's Choice Award for a Best Academic Title. Romero is also an ordained minister and faith-rooted community organizer. Welcome, Robert. It's so good to have you on the podcast. So great to be here, Paul. I look forward to our conversation. I'm really looking forward to learning from you. The first set of questions are actually about critical race theory, and I have a copy of your book here. So the first question I have is, at multiple points of this book, you state that CRT is helpful. I think that's literally the word that you use, and you refer to it as something that can serve as a bridge between Christians and non-Christians, and maybe even a tool for Christian witness and evangelism. And this is, of course, quite a contrast to how many Christian folks tend to view CRT. So can you give an example or two of how CRT can serve as a bridge, as in deepen that understanding of Christian faith, and when you teach about CRT to students, what's an example of how CRT can serve as a bridge? Awesome. Well, first I'll say like my approach for using it as a bridge is biblical. So just like, like John, you know, in, in the first verses of John it uses the concept of the logos as a bridge to his Roman audience or like Paul and, and the, you know, when he's talking to the Areopagus and he's like, throwing down these verses from like, you know, Greek poetry, it's like a bridge, right? And, and, mm. and that's my approach too. And so an example, a really good example has to, has to do with race and ethnicity, right? So Christianity in the circles that I swim in, it's viewed by so many people as this racist, classist, sexist religion that has nothing but negative things to say about the topic of race. Right. So how do you bridge a conversation about race with, with people who, who believe that and for good reasons, right? Because of the way Christianity has been misrepresented, it continues to be with respect to issues of race. So one like central critical race theory theme that I address in the book and then analyze biblically is the concept of community cultural wealth. So this is the idea, it comes from CRT in education. And it's the idea that students of color bring distinct community cultural wealth, distinct cultural capital to their K through 12 and university educations. Like historically, in traditional educational studies, color were viewed from a, a cultural deficit lens. Right. So, so people would say, oh, well, that kid, you know, he doesn't do well in school because he's, he's Latino and they don't, they don't value education and they don't work hard. And so... A traditional approach in education was to get Latino and black students to succeed in education, you needed to kind of basically turn them into middle-class white students. Mm -hmm. 
right? Erase their culture right. that doesn't have much value and turn them into middle-class white students. Community cultural wealth says that's completely wrong, right? Students of color bring community cultural wealth that is equally as valid as anybody else. And it might look different sometimes, but it's, it's, it's unique and it's, and even God given, right? The mm -hmm. God given part, that's my bridge, right? So I look, right. look at Revelation chapter 21 verses 26 and 27. And, you know, John is describing like the new Jerusalem, right? And gives us some images, some thoughts to kind of reflect upon what's that new Jerusalem going to be like when Jesus comes and makes all things new. And in verse 26, John says, that the glory and honor of the nations will be brought in. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought in. In my reading, the community cultural treasure, the doxa of the different ethnic groups of the world is of eternal significance to God right? and, 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 and will last forever, right? And so I, I kind of like in the book sort of, you know, create that as a bridge and then as well, one more leap, as I say, if there's distinct community cultural wealth that Latinos bring, that we bring diverse community cultural wealth, how come that's not studied in the university? Why isn't the religious aspect studied of that community cultural wealth? And that allows me to dialogue with multiple disciplines. I'm already taking notes. I think the term that you use, distinct community cultural wealth, I can already see some parallels in my discipline of psychology where as a counseling psychologist, we are often employing like a deficit model, like looking at psychopathology. Why, why don't Asian Americans utilize help seeking as much? Why are anxiety symptoms elevated in a particular group, right? Kind of like what you described where there's a focus in education on like, why aren't they performing as well? Kind of an approach, but. I think you're challenging that approach and saying that there needs to also be more of a, in my field, we call it sort of a positive psychology approach or strength-based approach where we highlight the strengths of the communities, right? And there is a deeply rooted theological reason for doing so. So I'm already seeing that connection between what you're talking about and what we do in psychology. I love that. You talk about this as well in the book, but there's the sphere of CRT in Christian communities that sometimes is based off of generalization and maybe even a misunderstanding of what CRT is about. And so in, on Christian campuses like mine, we sometimes get questions from parents, like, what are your thoughts on CRT? Or are you teaching CRT in the classroom? And then there's a clear sort of agenda behind that question, right? Or we've had guests on this podcast talk about how as an ad administrator of a Christian higher ed, parents have called and asked about like, what is your stance on CRT? And I'm curious for those who are in higher education and especially in Christian higher ed and having these conversations with parents, what thoughts do you have or suggestions do you have for addressing those kinds of questions? How might they graciously, but also accurately answer those questions? Yeah. Well, first, I, I fully appreciate the difficulty of that and the nuance of that and the challenge of that. So first, God bless you because <laughs> it's so hard. Then I would say, like, there's a couple of, I think I put it in a few different ways, right? First, there is CRT as an academic discipline, and mm -hmm. then there's CRT in the popular mind mm -hmm. and in the popular Christian mind, if you will. 
So CRT as an academic discipline, it's a le- it, it it arose first as a, a as a legal framework, legal theoretical legal framework to to look at the way in which race has operated in the U.S. legal system. It came about by lawyers of color and even others who went through their their you know, their three years of law school, but never learned anything about kind of the way that race as a legal concept has operated throughout U.S. history. Let me just give an example. So from 1790 until 1952, to become a naturalized U.S. citizen was only a, allowed if you were legally defined as white, right. Le- as a legal definition by the courts. So CRT says, why is that? You know, what's the significance of that, right? Or in, let's say, in California, in the time of residential segregation, there was a the, the Rumford Act that was passed by an African-American state senator, which banned racial discrimination in housing. This is in the 60s. Well, like a year later, the people of California, through a ballot in- initiative, said, we want to restore racial discrimination in housing. <laughs> like, those are just sort of like CRT as a legal discipline asks, why, why was that so? How did it take place? And are there ramifications and kind of hangover effects, if you will, today, right? That's CRT hmm. as a legal discipline. Right. And it branched out into other disciplines. In the popular imagination, CRT represents anything crazy and far left, hmm. right? <laughs> um, and that was a deliberate political strategy and there's, there's, you know, you can read about this, right? How it was, it was a strategy to sort of turn C- CRT into something that was scary and dangerous, right? So those are two different conversations. But this is where I, I want to pick your brain too, like, because I think this is taps into social, social psychology, right? We all bring, we all have different social identities, right? And the social identities, you know, we, we, there's different groups in society based upon race, based upon politics, based upon religion, based upon different things, right? That we create emotional attachments with. And those become social identities. And CRT rubs against certain social identities in U.S. society. And, so, and those social identities are political they're cultural, and they get mixed with the religious as well. Mm-hmm. And CRT rubs against a certain social identity that says, well, I'm Christian, and I'm American, and the U.S. is just this um, really exceptional country. Don't say anything bad about it, right? And so CRT, in trying to bring certain critiques to make the country better, it rubs up, it crashes against that certain social identity. But, you know, what's funny is like, you know, I've been reading St. Augustine mm-hmm. the last few days because you know, I've had more time as students are in finals. And that type of, of melding of religion and politics, St. Augustine calls that out <laughs> like 1600 years ago. <laughs> and so it's not like it's new, but I think right. that's the rub. It's a politicization of a certain type of Christian social identity. And, and from a social psychology perspective, it threatens that in-group dynamic, right? What, what feels safe, what feels like a very strong and 
correct in-group identity is challenged and is threatened, right? And I think that's sort of the rub or the clashing of the identities that you're talking about. You know, while you argue that CRT is helpful, in your book, you also talk about how you recognize or at least wrestle with some aspects of CRT from a Christian perspective. Can you give one example of that? I think that would be really helpful for our listeners to, to think about from your perspective, like what are some aspects that you grapple with from a Christian perspective? Yeah, for sure. And just to be clear for the, to the listeners and whoever's listening, it's like my approach in the book is not that CRT is the same as Christianity. Right. It's like, then I'd be making the same mistake that we're talking about. I'm not trying to conflate CRT with my Christian social identity. I'm just trying to find aspects of CRT that can be a bridge, right? Right. And indeed, that can, if all truth is God's truth, right? Mm. Like St. Augustine talked about there, then you know, there are aspects of CRT that, that can be helpful, right? And so that's my approach. Some people try to pigeonhole me into say, you're saying CRT is, is the same as Christianity. And mm. like, it's not my argument at all, right? To be honest, I don't even care if people care about CRT, but I do care that people can understand some of the, the truths that align with scripture and, mm -hmm. you know, that are underlying CRT, like community cultural wealth. But to give examples, right? So CRT does not possess the, the, the resources to build us towards a beloved community of all, right? CRT is really good at certain type of, of analysis, right? Legal, social analysis that says, okay, well, you know, from 1790 to 1953, hey, only people who were legally defined as white could get naturalized as a U.S. citizen. And today that results in, you know, this in-group identity that we're talking about like a couple of minutes ago. But CRT is not good. What do you do next then? <laughs> okay, like, so, so how do you like address those problems, but in a way then that that bridges understanding in the body of Christ. As an example, right? Yeah. Um, some CRT can like skew Marxist, for example, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not a Marxist. As I say in the book, my Chinese ancestors, my, my mom, actually, I just like the ancestor, like their family had to flee China because they were, they were going to be killed by the communists because they were pastors. So I'm not a Marxist, right? But some of the analysis can, you know, and so, and, and so, the limitations of, of certain Marxist analysis are present there, right? Like that's, right. but at the same time, to 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 kind of knock down that boogeyman, mm -hmm. you know, some people say that CRT is incompatible with Marxism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, there's even a famous Marxist scholar from who's British who's, who wrote a whole book on that. Right. that CRT is not compatible with Marxism. Mm -hmm. So, anyways, just to offer some nuance there, right? And so I think like. It's, and so here, CRT, thing I'll say is like related to that CRT, and this is where, where Jeff, Jeff Leo, my good mm -hmm. friend and co-author talks about this, like CRT does not offer a hopeful eschatological vision. It doesn't have that within itself, right? To be fair, it wasn't designed to do that either, but mm -hmm. it's, like, it's like, it's lawyers, right? Mm -hmm. At the same time, it's just a true thing, right? Some folks who they're disenchanted with their Christian faith because of all the, all the, painful intersections with like nationalism and stuff. And then they, they kind of leave the church and they drink all the CRT Kool-Aid <laughs> or they drink, they drink it fully. Right. Or, or right. for that matter, just the activist Kool-Aid. I'm an activist. I'm an organizer. Like I, I can say that, you know, 
But I know having been in the activist world for the last 20 years, not all of activism aligns with Jesus and scripture. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't. Right? So that's, that's true at the same time. But some young folks, they just kind of in there. And this is where you can talk about the trauma. It's this great intersection, right? In their trauma can just replace one package of, of flawed assumptions yeah. with, with another one. And again, to be clear, I'm an activist too, right? That's part right. of my hat. I've been a professor in ethnic studies for almost 20 years, mm -hmm. but I've been there a professor long enough to know that there are really good things, which I appreciate, yeah, and definitely ways in which it doesn't align with, with, with my faith. Right, right. I really appreciate this very nuanced perspective. And what you're describing, Robert, reminds me of, again, the tension in my field, which is between the descriptive and prescriptive nature of psychology. And we often are, like we, we in psychology often say that our job as researchers in psychology is to be mainly descriptive, as in describing the way things are. And we're limited in terms of being able to say prescriptive things, right? And we sort of look to folks in theology <laughs> and maybe even history to be more prescriptive in some sense. But what you described as sort of the limitations of CRT kind of resonated with that descriptive versus prescriptive tension and how and why, at least when I do psychology, I always turn to then theology and my Christian faith for more of the prescriptive elements. Like, so what, what do we do with this? How do we create that? vision that you mentioned, the beloved community. Amen. Can, can I throw something in there? Yeah, of course. Of can course. I throw something yes. in? Just... <laughs> Please. This is, these are like my live thoughts mm -hmm, from the last mm -hmm. few days. So I'm going to get super nerdy, but I hear, you know, your yeah. audience can take it, right? Yeah. So St. Augustine in, in the city of God, he talks about something called libido dominandi. <laughs> libido dominandi, right? Two Latin words that, again, I don't really... No Latin, but, <laughs> but it kind of means like that human beings outside of God were oftentimes were driven by this sense of wanting to kind of like dominate other people, dominate things like in terms of, but it's it's more like a, a lusting for dominance, right? We want to like, it, it's, it does have sexual overtones, but it's also about power. It's also about money. It's like this driving like, and it's kind of like, like examples are like, like when Jesus, Jesus, you know, I was just reading in Mark today, he says like, you know, don't be like those Gentiles rulers, like the Romans, like they, they rule it over people or it's Herod who's performs this disgusting thing where his, his daughter-in-law performs a birthday dance, right. For him and, and his rulers. And he's you know, like, that's disgusting. That's like libido dominandi, right? Like he talks about how this libido dominandi on a personal level it gets actualized on a social level through empire. Mm. Empire is like an external expression of libido dominandi, right? Mm. And I'll just add one thing, and then I can't wait for you to, to hear your thoughts. <laughs> is like, so libido dominandi, again, is like this lust for power and domination and money and all these things, right? It's kind of a slippery definition that comes to dominate us, actually. Okay. To put the racial analysis, and these are all my live thoughts, right? It's so fun to share with you. Yeah, I think the concept of, of race in the United States is a certain expression of libido dominandi, right? mm -hmm. where certain people from of a Northern European immigrant extraction said, 
we are, we're going to put ourselves above everybody else. We're going to create this country called the United States. And we're going to create these racial categories. Right. And we're even going to create this whole institution of slavery based upon racial categories so that we can dominate other people right? who don't fit into our legal definitions of well, what does white mean, right? Or legal definitions of, of, you know, Asians, even creating that terminology, right? Orientals are not white or, you know, Latinos, maybe sometimes they're white. Race is like a, it's like a social expression, legal expression of this. So I'm so excited to hear your kind of psychological ruminations on that. It's fascinating. I thought about Freud and how he was all about libido, right? Literally about libido, but also Freud talked about this desire that people have to dominate others. And he mainly meant it through violence and sexual things, right? But certainly we can make those extended connections to what you're talking about in terms of racism being about one group dominating and doing violence to others, right? And then in response to Freud, there's a Oh, Victor Frankl, who wrote Man's Search for Meaning, he talked about how it's not about dominating others, but he talked about how it's important to have this will to meaning, right? Meaning he thought that we are, our primary drive shouldn't be about dominance, but about finding meaning, right? And, and I guess from a Christian perspective, that sort of drive of finding meaning to me is much more attractive compared to what Freud talked about, which is we're dominated by our desire to enact violence and aggression toward other people. So yeah, when you share that, I, I immediately thought about Freud and Viktor Frankl as two people in psychology that I often talk about. I love that. Finding meaning. And then of course, that's the gospel, right? It's just like Jesus saying, okay, let me tell you how to find meaning. Yeah. To make the world new. Yes. Through me. Yes. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. And what Viktor Frankl says is you don't find meaning by trying to find meaning, but you find meaning hmm. obliquely by doing things like serving others, right? Doing things that gives you joy, but also makes other people better and happier. And I, I, I really, res that resonates with me when I think about the Christian gospel, right? The way we ultimately find our meaning in Christ is not by trying to become happy, but by serving others in the best way possible, right? Wow, that sounds so much like St. Augustine too. It does. You've already touched upon this, but when you're teaching about CRT, and I, I know that you don't teach in an explicitly Christian context, but when you do try to bring in faith component to this, do you have a pedagogical tool example that you use to help students understand, or for that matter, for people in the community understand the connection between CRT and Christian faith? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And what's fun, and even though I teach at a public institution, there is a space there yeah. to talk about theological concepts and not trying to convert or not trying to say like, oh, you should believe this, but just to present them as sort of like ideas, right? So that's really fun for me. So I've begun to do that by teaching courses on my other book, Brown Shirt. Mm. Brown Shirt. Yes. And the whole framing of Brown Church, it's, it's, you know, it's a conversation with my whole field mm -hmm. of Chicano Latino studies. Mm -hmm about exploring, you know, the role of faith in Chicano Latino communities using CRT and using this whole framework of community cultural wealth and, you know, tying it to theology, right? So it's a whole bridge. So yeah. the way that I do that is 
I will kind of reminisce with people about our diverse kind of religious experiences as Latinos, Latinas, mm-hmm. and most of them have them, right? Yeah. For better and for worse. And some, a lot of, some, sometimes, you know, for better, right? And we have these kind of, this understanding intuitively, not everybody, because there's trauma there too, but that the faith that we experience as kids is something good. It's valuable. And like, like, like the knowledge that we gain from our parents and grandparents, even though they might not have PhDs or something, right. that, that spiritual knowledge is something really valuable, right? And then, you know, so experientially, I, I tell these stories, but then we come to the university setting many times, and we're told that our Christian faith is just rubbish. Mm-hmm. And the knowledge that we gain from our our family members who never went to college, never got a PhD, that it's, oh, just give it all up and believe the PhD dude from Harvard, right? And intuitively, my students at least know that that the latter is wrong, right? Mm. And I say that in your church spaces, spaces growing up, in those church spaces and in those familial spaces, there is this valuable community cultural wealth <laughs> spiritual capital that the university might not recognize, but it should. And then that leads me into conversations about like theology even, right? Where I can be like, okay, well, how do, how does the diverse Latino community see scripture differently? Mm -hmm. What are some unique insights? And then for that matter, that's why we need the whole body of Christ, all the cultural treasure and wealth. That's why we need each other, because we can come, for example, to the sacred text of Scripture and bring understanding that we all need. I love that. And I know this is jumping to a later question, but I want to ask it now, which is you are one of the few guests so far on the podcast who teach in a higher education setting that is not a Christian higher ed setting. And I I love the fact that we can have you here talk about that experience and I, I, I guess if you've already responded to that question about working in a much more religiously diverse setting, right? But could you say a little bit more about how you bring in your faith into what you do? Because you do that so beautifully and you do it in a very public way, but you also wear many different hats as a professor, as a minister, as a lawyer. And so how do you integrate your Christian faith into what you do? And I use that term very deliberately because in Christian higher ed, as you know, we are always talking about faith integration. Like what does that look like in and outside of our classroom? What's a good way to do that? Well, what's maybe not a good way to do that? And I want to hear from you as someone who is not in Christian higher ed, what is your approach to faith integration? Part of my story is, is in order here. God radically got a hold of my life when I was in law school Hmm. and in law school, I was dominated by libido dominandi <laughs> i wanted to be rich and famous make a lot right. of money all those kind of things and then yeah. jesus got a hold of my life hmm. and a long story short as part of god getting a hold of my life like i felt this calling to become a professor and as a professor to address issues of race and christianity like that was like a clear calling that led me throughout my graduate education 
and then I come to UCLA, right? As my my position for the last eighteen years, right? And I, in a public university setting, which is a very unique setting mm-hmm. that that I, I and for I always try to say this when I'm on podcasts or something. Anybody from UCLA listening, I deeply respect the, the you know the proper legal boundaries and separation of church and state, right? But that being said, within those those appropriate um, guidelines, there's creative ways to just be myself. <laughs> so, so for example, like we've talked about the intellectual part of it is like, how do I create a conversation about Christianity and religion in Chicano Latino studies when the field has historically really left it out, left religion out. Mm-hmm. And that gave me the chance to write Brown Church and the CRT and Christianity book. And even to create, like, I was asked to to co-edit a whole volume in the flagship journal of our field about wow. religion. It's so beautiful, right? Like, yeah. in my classroom setting, like, one, one thing that I love about being in a public university setting is that all perspectives are supposed to be out there on the table. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. And respected equally. And honestly, like, uh, this is probably going to be something that people might, they're not expecting to hear what I'm about to say. But what I love about it is that I can present, you know, different perspectives, even about religion and theology and Christianity that I might not even agree with. <laughs> mm-hmm. But but because it's a public university, it's appropriate to talk about all of it <laughs> versus like like if I was like say at a Christian institution alone, yeah, you know, I would have to stay within a certain sort of right. set of theological confines, yeah, which I would probably agree with, to be honest. But but in a public university setting, I can just like read with my students all these books that I'm curious about that I don't even agree with, but I just so it's really fun that way. That's just mm. an aside. But then as a Christian in ethnic studies, right, for many years I've had the privilege of working in, in with churches around issues of justice mm. outside of the classroom. Right. Which has been wonderful, right? I've worked on national immigration campaigns. I've been arrested a couple of times, right? Oh, and that's all a witness to the university. Right. <laughs> and it gives me legitimacy to be able to, you know, share about Christianity because by God's grace, you know, I think I've, I've I try to embody love and care for the poor and immigrants. And as well as finally, I would just say all justice kind of topics aside, trying to just be a kind human being in the academy and trying to care for students and for, and for my colleagues. And I don't always succeed, but honestly, that's libido dominandi dominates the university just as much as it dominates anywhere else. So if you can create a, a counter right. witness to that, again, I don't do it perfectly. I, I put my foot in my mouth and made mistakes, but, but if you can even, if I can even get that right, you know, half of the time, that's pretty good. Yeah. That's really powerful. And I really appreciate it when you said that in some sense, being in a public setting allows you even more freedom to be able to engage many different perspectives, right? And I think you're absolutely right that sometimes the Christian higher education institutions, because of theological affiliations or other, maybe some 
traditional things that have been part of the university, right? What we talk about can be very restricted. So I really appreciate that perspective that you shared. In public writing and speaking, you've been open about your identity as an Asian Latino. And you mentioned it briefly as well today. How do you engage your biracial or multiracial identity in a way that like you're able to do so both for your Asian identity and also for your Latino identity? I know that's kind of maybe dichotomizing things that maybe shouldn't be dichotomized, right? But for just for our conversation today, like what are some ways that you are connected professionally to your Asian identity and also your Latino identity, which you've already talked about? Sure. And I would say first that like, it's been a long, a lifelong journey of mm. really trying to understand those different identities and yeah. their value and meaning. And mm. because, I mean, from a psychological standpoint, <clears throat> so, so when I was a young kid growing up in the, I was born in East Los Angeles, mm. but I was raised in the suburbs of Los Angeles okay. in the seventies and eighties, which was you know, when I started school, it was less than a decade after schools were desegregated. Schools were not mm. desegregated in most of the U.S. until like 1970. And so here I enter as a, you know, Asian Latino kid into a very white school setting where race was very live. And, you know, there's so tons of racism. Like I remember... It was in first grade and, you know, some, and like hearing like Asian jokes, right? Mm. Like me Chinese, me play joke, me do pee pee in your Coke. Like, mm. oh, you know, or things like, what happens when you throw in knives and forks on the floor? Oh, that's how Chinese people name themselves, right? Things like, mm. or, you know, hearing being called beater or things like that. So race was very live. And so in the psyche of a young seven, eight, nine-year-old, you try to figure out, well, how do I fit into the dominant right. Group. You don't even have the language, right? Yeah. And at that time, it was very much like you wanted to be like a white person because you didn't mm. want to stand out. You wanted to fit in. Yeah. And as a young kid, that led me. It's it's ironic because it might be different now in certain settings, but it led me to a to lean into my Latino identity because that was my closest access to whiteness as a kid. Got it. And my dad's family is white passing. Mm. They're from a part of Mexico where they consider themselves white even. That was like my kind of the psychology that I did. I ended up denying my Chinese Asian heritage for like a couple of decades, seriously, for a couple of decades. Right? And then that's where I, I felt like this journey from God. I don't understand the things in the book, the things we're talking about, right? That you know, cultural wealth, like by God's design, right? That... And then understanding how, you know, my, my diverse Asian background, it's a certain pot of cultural treasure. My Latino Mexican side, it's a certain, my American side and, and it's all who I am. And all mm -hmm. of it, of course, all that cultural treasure and wealth is constantly changing and transforming anyways, right? It's not static, right? right? No. And so I, I, it has allowed me to kind of, kind of come like, articulate this framework where I can say, okay, I'm, my primary identity is as a, a son of God in Christ Jesus, the people of God, right? I mean, in, in the early church, they used to even say that the Christians were a new race of people. 
Of course, Peter talks about that, you know, royal priesthood and so forth, the new nation, but that's the primary identity, right? But as that part of that, me being God's unique child, I bring distinct cultural treasure to the table. <laughs> and I don't have to choose just one, or I don't have to say, well, just one of this treasure is really, is really meaningful and valuable and the other is not, right? <laughs> and that, that, that integrates my, my, my gender and integrates my cultural treasure. It, it, it integrates my different everything, right? So, I, so like I have a whole, I'm whole. I'm whole. <laughs> okay. Mm -hmm. And I'm a unique part of the body of Christ. And I don't have to just force to be forced to choose just one. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. I know that's a very, in some sense, a very personal question that I threw at you. So I appreciate you being candid and sharing, Robert. And also your point about starting out with the foundation of I'm a child of God, but also recognizing that underneath that umbrella, there are distinct ways where you're a child of God, right? Because I think sometimes the racial colorblindness that permeates Christian context stops that I'm a child of God. So end of the story, right? Yeah. But you continue yeah. that story into recognizing the distinctiveness under that I'm a child of God umbrella. So I really appreciated that part. Yeah, I have a story, you know, after Brown Church came out a couple of years ago, a few years ago, I got a call from another professor, Latino professor in Texas. And he said, I read Brown Church. It was very, you know, you know, gave, made me think a lot. And he said, with my wife, it was a cross-cultural marriage, but he said, I've been part of this church in Texas, a reformed church. They loved me. They loved my wife, our family. In fact, that church, through their love, allowed him to come to know Christ, right? And mm. he's like, you know, nothing but positive things to say about that church, right? In terms of their love. But, but he said, Robert, I've being at that church, I've forgotten that I'm Latino. Perfect. Mm. <laughs> wow. Right. So it wasn't something like negative that they were trying to do, but their church space was informed and shaped by a certain expression of community cultural treasure which is valuable, but in order to fit into that space, he had to leave his own out the door. And he said, what do I do? Like, do I stay? Do I go? What do I do? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> God could call you to stay and to integrate your cultural treasure and, and have that conversation there. God could have you go somewhere else where it's easier just to sort of partake of that cultural treasure without having to struggle. There wasn't no, there was no right or wrong answer, but it just struck me because he said, you know, again, it was so such stark language. I forgot I'm Hispanic. Wow. Yeah, that's a really powerful example. And again, I'm making connections to in psychology how we talk about like that sort of the assimilation model of looking at cultural adaptation and how that used to be sort of the what was encouraged for immigrants, right? That you assimilate, Robert, you mentioned like trying to fit into a white context as quickly as possible. And I think that's maybe some of our parents, grandparents, or immigrants really thought about that as a survival mechanism, right? That assimilation mentality. But then like in psychology, we also contrast assimilation with more of a bicultural approach, right? Where you don't have to leave your culture at the door when you go and go to a church, right? Where you can bring in that community wealth into the church setting. And so 
Yeah, I really resonated with that example. So thanks for sharing. Robert, I have two questions that I ask all the guests. So the first question is simply, what advice do you have for those who are just starting their careers in academia, especially those who are of Christian faith and wanting to start their careers in academia, whether it's in a Christian setting or in a public setting? What advice might you have for those who are starting up their careers? I think for me, being kind of having, you know, really developing a strong sense of calling, Hmm. like, okay, I'm here for a purpose. Like God's calling me to this and whatever that looks like for somebody, because the times get hard, right? Super hard. Yeah. And for me, it's like the sense of calling that's kept me in the game and it gets me it gets me up every morning. It truly gives me a sense of like adventure with God. And then having, having the long game in mind too. On any given day, it could be just really tough. But I think that the church and the U.S. are in this moment of, of radical transition that's going to last the next hundred years at least. So it's like if you're starting as a, as a professor in a certain context, just, you know, have the long game in mind and, and, and try to maximize those opportunities that being a professor gives you, right. To live a meaningful life and care for people. Right. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And that could look like a lot of different ways. That's what I would say first. Yeah. Like you said, it's so easy to get tunnel vision and really focus on that next thing that you need to do, or the, maybe the thing that's in front of us right now, right. But to have that long-term sort of plan or long, long game in mind, I think is really important. The second question, Robert, that I ask all guests is kind of a fun one, or it could be a really serious one. And that is (laughs) without knowing who my next guest is, if you could ask them any question about some of the themes that we've talked about today, what might it be? And if you're curious about what my previous guests asked is they asked, if you had the opportunity to completely change your career, what would that be? And I know that for you, you already have multiple hats that you're wearing, right? So if you want to think about a new career that if you had the opportunity that you would switch to, feel free to answer that as well. But any question for my next guest? I think I would dig deeper into the psychology thing because I think Mm. it's, and I I would want to understand what is the psychology that animates Christian nationalism that makes it so difficult to crack that egg open? That would be my question. That's definitely a very important question and not, not a, not a quick question to answer, but thank you. I'll, I'll throw it at the next guest. And then any Robert response to that question about if you had the opportunity to change your career to anything, what might that be? That's funny. I think if I had another life, I'd probably like do psychology. Wow. (laughs) Good choice. (laughs) And hopefully I didn't influence you or pressure you into that response. I've been doing 20 years of therapy. I've been doing 20 years of therapy. I know how, how important it is. Thank you for that shout out to psychology. It's been amazing to chat with you, Robert. And I, of course, admired your work for some time now. And it's been good to connect with you through this podcast. Do you have anything else you'd like to share before we wrap up our conversation? 
think what comes to my mind is, you know, thank you, Paul, and your listeners for taking us to what's next. You know, for the church, especially, there's like a Spanish, famous poem in Spanish that says, um, Caminante, no hay camino. Caminante, no hay camino. Kind of means like, pilgrim, there is no path. <laughs> I think that... Again, I think I'm firmly convinced in the next hundred years in the U.S. church, God is at work, but we don't know what that's going to look like. And we need your, this full range of, of knowledge and study and prayer and reflection to get us to that next place where we need to be. Thank you for that encouragement and for that challenge as well. Again, thank you so much, Robert, for being on the podcast. I learned so much from you, and I trust that our listeners will as well. Likewise. Thank you for listening to the Cross-Cultural Psych Podcast with Dr. Paul Youngbin Kim. We hope this content was meaningful. If you enjoyed the podcast, we invite you to write a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Also, let us know what you'd like to see covered in future episodes. We hope you will join us next time.